Thank you, Aaron and Marilyn. And let's turn in our Bibles to Micah once again in chapter 7. And what a great prayer that is. Of course, J. Edwin Orr linking to Psalm 139. Search my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the, the, the beginnings, the seed plot of revival. Revival begins with an individual, doesn't it? And hopefully transitions from there to a church, to a community, to a city, to a nation. And it'd be wonderful if if Micah did that here this week. And and I know it's had an impact in my own heart in preparation and in preaching these messages. Stirring reminder of God's love and what He has called us to. As we come now to chapter 7, in verse 8, verse 8 through 20 is the concluding section of chapter 7 in the book itself. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. There's a shift here. If you compare what he was speaking out about in verse chapter 6, verse 9, down through 7, 7, it's dealing with another explanation of the difficulties that the people of Israel would go through to break them of their dependence on self. And we looked at some of that this morning. By the way, when we look at that idea of the lame being healed, a picture of restoration, a picture of regeneration as well, We mentioned John chapter 5. You remember right at the beginning of the book of Acts, the first great miracle that's performed is in Acts chapter 3. And again, what is it? A healing of a lame man. And of course, if we think back to who was the first lame man in the Bible? Who was the first? It was Jacob. It was Jacob. And here we keep, he keeps me referring to the people of Jacob, the God of Jacob, all the way through Micah. So all of these things tie together. Jacob struggled with God at Peniel and, and, and prevailed, God said. But he had to touch his hip. He had to break him. He limped the rest of his life as a reminder of his dependence upon the Lord. Would it be worth it to limp like that? To, to remind ourselves of our dependence upon the Lord, I think we could say it would. And whatever trials and difficulties He brings us through, brings us into and through, are for our good, if we allow them to do the work in our hearts. And that's where we see in verse 8 here of chapter 7, the right response. Humble confession. Like the song we just sang. First, and, and Micah is speaking representatively of the remnant of Israel, all right? So often the prophets do that. Our Lord uses that kind of terminology sometimes in the Olivet Discourse and other places. And here Micah is representing the remnant, not the entire, not every individual Israelite, because as Paul tells us in Romans 9, not all who are of Israel are Israel, right? Only the remnant, only those who are believing Israel. And he's speaking representatively, and and there's an enormous shift between verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7 dealing with that, the uh, very difficult time of people and man's enemies of his own household and so forth. And that characterized Micah's day in the Assyrian invasion. It characterized the time of the Babylonian invasion a hundred years later. It characterized the Roman invasion... 500 years after that, and it it will characterize the time of the tribulation period just before the battle of Armageddon. 
And in the battle of Armageddon, Israel is miraculously protected by the Lord at His second coming. And Israel, as it were, turns to the nations, the remnant of Israel. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall. I will arise. And that's the title of the message tonight. When I fall, I will arise. Notice it's not if I fall. (laughs) The Lord knows our frame. He knows that we are dust, doesn't he? And we make bad decisions. And, And we sin against our Lord. And there are consequences to every decision we make. And of course we want to minimize those consequences as much as we can. But the great truth of the Lord, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is if I fall and when I fall, I will arise. The Lord will pick me up. He'll put me back on my feet. There is a method, a process to restoration. And that's part of the hope of the gospel, isn't it? We never want to pull that part, that great truth out of the gospel. It's part of the great hope of the message. And it gives great hope for every one of us. When I fall, and I think the fall he's talking about here is the fall, the turning away from God, the apostasy that he has predicted here in this book. I will arise, and when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. You see, when the remnant is going particularly through the tribulation period, it's a time of enormous darkness on the not spiritual darkness on the earth. A darkness that can be felt, like the, one of the plagues of Egypt. It, it, it's going to be, it's indescribable what it will be like. Some of us think that some of the darkness that we see today or that we go through today parallels, but it doesn't. It doesn't even come close. Can you imagine when the restrainer is pulled back and the restraint against evil is, is taken away, what man in his full horrors of his heart is unleashed upon mankind but the Lord even in the midst of that the Lord himself will be a light to me and we can make an application here can't we for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ when we're going through a difficult trial and everything around us seems like darkness how do we have hope how do we Persevere, because the Lord Himself is a light to us. We look to the Lord Himself, like Peter did when he was walking on the water and began to sink. And then the the confession in verse 9, so important. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case. You see... That's what it means to be brought to the end of ourselves. This is what a great definition of the brokenness we were talking about this morning. How we come to that place where we agree with God. We say, Lord, it was right for you to discipline me. Not easy words to say if you really mean them. It's easy to talk about it theoretically, isn't it? But if you're going through through a child training period from the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, we tend to want to defend ourselves. We tend to want to ask the Lord, why me? Why am I going through this? Why not brother or sister so-and-so? They look like they could use it a lot more than me. And yet, 
The Lord has us going through it, you see, because He knows. He knows what we need. And He says, I've sinned against the Lord, against Him, until He pleads my case. So we have a picture here. You know, our Lord Jesus now is our great high priest pleads our case at the throne of God, doesn't he? And he executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. You see the hope? You see the faith in the remnant? Though they're going through this time of darkness and suffering, and they're doing it because of their own sin, they admit it. It's the sin of the nation, but they're taking, representatively, they're taking responsibility for it. The nation has turned against the Lord. And for us, we can look not so much nationally because the Lord is working individually now in various nation groups. But we can sometimes intercede for the entire assembly here in, in, in things that we know that we're burdened about by the Lord that we, we don't see in the assembly in terms of spiritual growth. And we can intercede for Him and agree with the Lord. Say, Lord, we want to be a shining light. We want to be brighter. We want to be a greater testimony. We're a testimony for you now, but we want to be a greater testimony. Do what you need to do in this assembly for your glory that you may be greater glorified through this meeting. Now that is mature spiritual prayer, isn't it? Sure, it's good to pray for those that have stubbed toes and, and other serious ailments. And we tend to, our prayer meetings tend to be just focused on that sometimes. But, but the spiritual matters behind those, that's what He wants us interceding for. You know, marriages that are about to break up, that's a great spiritual battle. It's the great back, uh, battleground that the, the uh, evil one's using now. And now sometimes we have to be discreet in, in using names and things like that, but there can be certain things that we can be praying about. Some brethren are trapped in sin, in pornography, and other things. We need to be interceding for them. If we really want to be a pure testimony for the Lord, I will see His righteousness. And then we've seen that reversal of fortunes motif that works all the way through the Bible which sometimes referred to as dramatic irony, when what you was before, what you expected, gets reversed in just the opposite way. Here it happens again in verse 10. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? You see, that's what the Assyrians were saying. Go back and look in Isaiah 36 to 39, what the Rabshakeh, the general, was saying to the men, the soldiers on the wall, and mocking God and saying, Your God's supposed to be protecting you. Where is your God? Here we are. We're about to crush you. We're the great Assyrian army. You better bow to our king. And those are right out of the words of Satan, aren't they? That's the same way Satan attacks us as believers. God has forgotten you. You're going through a difficult trial and He's forgotten you. You better submit to Me, the devil says. And that's a real test of faith, isn't it? And we say, no. No, we will not submit to the evil one. We will not submit to the ideas of the world and the evil of it. 
There was a great statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read it to you in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And that's what goes back to what we were talking about this morning. Evil associations corrupt. That's one of the great sub-themes of Micah, isn't it? The beginning of sin in Judah was Lachish. They decided to imitate Ahab's house and the statutes of Omri in the north and Samaria. In other words, they adopted the ways of the world to do the Lord's work. And that's happening in churches today. It's happening at camps today. It's happening in assemblies today. And I'm telling you, there are some places if I had children, I wouldn't let them go. Period. Because I'm not going to let them be contaminated by evil ideas of people who claim to be representing Christ and they're not. They're just adopting the world's ways to justify sin. That's what it is, isn't it? And evil associations, associating with evil people on the internet, associating with evil people in the world, corrupts people that even have good ideas when they first associated with them. And you and I know people where this has happened and they're away from the Lord even right now. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, Paul says. That's in the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. You see, Paul says believing in the resurrection ought to have a practical aspect in righteousness and holiness in our lives. So Micah says... Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her, and now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. And I think that's a reference ultimately to the battle of Armageddon. The nations who came against Israel, the nations who mocked Israel for at least three and a half of the seven years, the entire seven year period, but especially in the second three and a half years, and when they encircle Jerusalem to destroy it and God miraculously intervenes, they're going to be trampled down like Israel was. And you see, this correlates back to chapter 1. We, we mentioned that chiastic structure, that first part of chapter 1. It was the nations, Assyria, coming in to trample the people of Samaria and Jerusalem. And now it's the other way around, you see. It's the nations that are going to be trampled. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. Whose walls are to be rebuilt? Jerusalem. And the remnant of Israel. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria. And you see that continual reference to Assyria? All the way through Micah? From Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain, yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it for the fruit of their deeds. See, when the Lord comes back and His feet step on the Mount of Olives, it's going to be in judgment. But it's also going to be in protection and restoration of the remnant. Remember that great statement in Matthew 25, 31? I love it. When the king 
when the Son of Man comes, He will sit as King on the throne of His glory. Hallelujah. That's where all of, for us who are illuminated by the Spirit of God, that's where all of history is pointed. The King, the true King, when He sits on the throne of His glory. And some translate it, the glorious throne. But the throne, there isn't anything special about the throne. The special thing about the throne is the one who sits on it. The Lord Himself. He is the one who makes it glorious when He returns into the earth. But He will have to make some cleaning up of things that needed to be cleaned up because of the wickedness of man. This idea of confession. It's interesting. A few pages over in the... uh, in the book of uh, Hosea, in chapter 14, the first few verses, there, I just wanted to look at these in, in one little section in Joel. gives us a great picture of what true, humble, godly confession looks like. And this is important because we live in a day where there's a lot of, of trite and shallow confession that's not genuine. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We can't save ourselves, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Say to Him, See, that's why when we share the gospel, we urge people, this verse, these set of verses, along with Romans 10, 9, and 10, tell us that that the person, the sinner, needs to turn and say something to God. Repentance means asking the Lord to save you. Turning, admitting your sinfulness, and asking Him. It's wonderful, isn't it? Repentance. Coming back to God. And then over in the book of Joel in chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. See, he will talk in Isaiah and in other places about turning with just lip service. And not with the heart. He says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. See, when a great trial was announced or would come, they'd rend their garments as a way of demonstrating their mourning. But that's kind of, that could be superficial too. It's not really of the heart. He says, don't just rend your garments. Rend your heart. Bow humbly. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows? If He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind instead of the trial. Who knows? Now, David believed that. He, he believed that he would intercede for that child of his until the child died. And they all said, well, what, David, why, why, do you, why did you stop fasting? He's dead. I, but I thought that as long as I interceded for him, the Lord might relent. I deserve this. David admitted it to the Lord. But I'm asking you on the basis of your mercy, Lord. Yes, there's judgment and there's mercy. I'm asking on the basis of your mercy. Relent, if you will. But I leave it with you. And that's what Micah is saying too. Trusting the Lord. 
And then verse 14 and 15 link back to what we were looking at this morning. The Messiah, the shepherd. Shepherd your people with your staff. And this is a picture, I believe, of what the Lord will do throughout the thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. You remember in Matthew 25, the beginning of the millennial kingdom where the Lord separates to the right and to the left? You remember what He calls them? To the right are the sheep and to the left are the goats, right? And the sheep inherit the kingdom prepared by your Father before the foundation of the world. Shepherd your flock. See, they, they, were, they will be His people, believers going into the millennial kingdom. But the goats, what does He tell them? You are cursed. Go into the everlasting fire and punishment prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. See, the judgment of the lake of fire was not prepared for man. The kingdom was prepared for man. But men will go to the lake of fire by their own choice. And they will be with the devil and his angels. Who are you going to be with tonight? And how do you know for sure? And how do you base that on the word of God? Make sure you know before you leave here tonight that you're a follower, disciple of Jesus Christ, that you believe in Him, and that believing is just you as an active word. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's an agreement to Him that He is Lord and Savior. And then walking with Him and living for Him and serving Him as long as we can with whatever strength He gives us. So he says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. There's a statement in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, I think that also is alluding indirectly to this passage. In Revelation 7, there are two groups of people. John, as he's describing the tribulation period that's about to come and has been introduced in chapter 6, he parenthetically moves aside and describes two groups of people. The 144,000, each out of the 12 tribes of Israel, they are listed here. And then beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7 down through verse 17, a second group, a multinational group. And we know from Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, that John includes himself with the believers who are redeemed by the Lord and redeemed to be kings and priests. He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. Notice John includes himself. He's made us that. And in chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, he sees the company who are worshiping the Lord and made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's the church. Then he comes to chapter 7. This isn't the church. This is a different group. And John doesn't even know who these people are. John's already said he knows who the church is in chapter 1. He's already said he knows who the church is and where they'll be in chapter 5. Then he comes to chapter 7 and he says, Who are these people? And one of the elders answers, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, washed, this is verse 14, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. I believe this is referring to the beginning of the millennial kingdom where our Lord will shepherd them just as it says in Micah 7. 
They're before the throne of God, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them on the earth in Jerusalem. And look at their suffering in verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. This is what they were suffering as they were on the run from Antichrist. Antichrist and his Hitler-like Gestapo will be pursuing anyone who claims allegiance to Jesus Christ and trying to destroy all the Jews. And then verse 17, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I believe what Micah is referring to here in 7, 14, and 15 is that event. And some of the terminology is even the same. He will shepherd them, lead them to living waters. It's parallel passages in Isaiah as well. And then in verse 16 of Micah 7, The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. You see, the nations, there will be a remnant of the nations who will believe during that time. They'll be ashamed of their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from the holes and make like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of whom? Because of you, Jesus, Messiah. See, He's appeared. Like lightning from the east, the Bible tells us. And the nations are going to see and they're going to put their... Oh, no. You mean that Jesus of Nazareth really is God? Really is Messiah? And they'll be ashamed. And they will fear. Now, would you, if you look about you today, would you say that the nations fear God like this now? If you went up to the UN when all the nations were gathered there a couple of weeks ago and proclaimed this message, do you think they'd start shaking in their boots out of fear of... No. And they're not afraid of you and me either. And if we proclaim this message, they'd just soon remove us from the scene so they can go on in their sinful idolatry that they continuously desire and enjoy every day. But there's coming a time they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you? Verse 18. Now we see the closing of this great monumental book closes in praise to God. In other words, in Micah's playing off of his name, isn't he? Mikael, who is a God like you? In other words, he's saying, Lord, you are incomparable in your greatness. There is no comparison with you. Do you believe that about the Lord? You know, we have to, we have to come to a place where we really agree with the Bible, what, the, what it says about our Lord, and then there will be times of faith in our struggles in this world where we begin to doubt that. But I mean tonight, is Jesus Christ without comparison in your own heart and mine? Who is a God like you? Why? Pardoning iniquity. And we have that great hymn, Who is a pardoning God like you? And passing over. 
There's the Passover again. The transgression of the remnant of his heritage. See, we deserve it. He has to pass over. And he can only pass over by the shedding of the blood, perfect blood, of a substitute, right? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. The skins had to be come from an animal that was slain. If you don't believe that, check out Hebrews chapter 11, which validates that Abel knew uh, a lamb sacrifice was needed. Where did Abel learn that? From Adam and Eve. Where did Adam and Eve learn it? From the Lord. Amen. And this, what a picture of our God. He does not retain His anger forever. Praise God. Does He have righteous reason, cause, to retain His anger forever? Think about what man has done to God. Think about what we personally have done in failing Him. He has cause to retain that anger forever. He chooses not to. That's why He tells us not to. In that great forgiveness chapter in Matthew 18, doesn't He? We have to choose to forgive and choose not to be angry at someone who has hurt us because that anger is still there. And we have to say no to it because we want to be like our Lord because He delights in mercy. I love that about God. It's not just that He is merciful and He is. Bible tells us that in many places. But He delights in mercy. You remember that what we saw in chapter 6, verse 8? What is it that God requires of man? By the way, you know, is it okay for God to require something of man? You know, we've, we've been having that great discussion around this country too. People saying, well, man, that's just a work salvation, isn't it? Is it? I don't think it is. I think it's a works validation of our salvation. But it's not a works salvation. Is it alright for God to require something of man? I mean, what kind of picture do people have of God that they think they can move Him around and manipulate Him like a toy? But that's a picture of our culture today. He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. Micah. Linking himself representatively with the remnancy. Now don't forget. Micah isn't on a vacation on some tropical island enjoying a coconut drink when he's, he is experiencing suffering here. He described it in chapter one, didn't he? It reached all the way up to the, the gates of Jerusalem, like the waters up to the neck. And while it did that, it took Moresha, my, my hometown. It took Lachish. It took Aksim. When the Assyrian invasion came in, they wasted everything. And I would encourage you, Brother Steve and I were talking about, Steve's seen the Neo-Assyrian exhibit in the British Museum. You can probably look at portions of it on the Internet. I don't know, but you young people might know more how to access that thing, that kind of stuff. But it's interesting to see this has been historically validated. They were ruthless and brutal with Micah's people. And who knows whether Micah may not have been caught up in it himself. But 
Micah has this hope, you see, the promise of restoration. Whatever it is you and I are called to go through by the Lord, there is this blessed hope. He will again have compassion on us and He will subdue our iniquities. I love this. And you will cast all our sins. Does it say most our sins? All our sins. Thank you. You will cast all our sins where? Into the depths of the sea. And I hope mine go down into Marianas Trench over there off the coast of Japan. The deepest part of the crust of the earth there in the ocean. 36,000 feet deep. Man can't even go down there. The pressures are too intense. Even with his steel vessels, they just get crushed in the pressure. He's working on it. They've sent some cameras down there trying to get down in there. Explore, you know. You'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So while the prophecy began with that horrific scene of judgment in that doom oracle in chapter 1, it ends with a hope oracle in chapter 7, doesn't it? A promise of restoration. God says, I'm going to work it all out. Trust me. You don't know the specific timetable. You don't know the specific day or hour. But I know it. And I'm in full control. And it's going to work out. So, live for me. Act like you believe what I'm telling you. Don't live for this world. Don't live for the delights of this world. Live for me. Act like you really believe what I'm telling you, the Lord tells us. It's a real challenge, isn't it? Well, I want to close with with those questions. We had a few questions in the question box. I think there were three of them. And they were good questions. One was out of the book of Micah. And it it refers to something in chapter 5 that that we kind of skipped over in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 5. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men, and they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod and so forth. Explain, here's the question, explain more the seven shepherds and eight princes. Has this happened? Who are they? Well, I believe this has not happened. I believe this will happen at the end of the tribulation period, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I think this is part of that additional 30 days and 60 days that Daniel 12 talks about. You know, he talks about the 1260 days and then there's another period as the Lord sets up the kingdom and He will be using... Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel 39 and 40 as well, right? And He'll be using these seven shepherds and eight princely men. Now... The word seven and the word eight have enormous significance in the Bible. Some believe that sometimes the Lord uses the methodology of going from seven to eight or just increasing in numerical order to emphasize something. For emphasis, the Lord can do that. And, And that could be what He's doing here. So that's one way to interpret it. Another way to interpret it is the seven, of course, is the number of completion fullness and eight is the number of the kingdom 
Regeneration. Our Lord rose on the eighth day, the first day after the seventh day. And so there's a, there's a link here, I think, too, in thinking about the seven shepherds and eight princely men, what may be the closure of the old earthly order and the movement on to the new order, the new age. The Lord talks about that, right? There's this present evil age, and there's the age to come. Sometimes the Lord just refers to it in two ways, this age and the age to come. And what separates them? His second coming. The age to come will begin at His second coming. So in other words, He will use leaders, shepherds within the nation to help purge the nation and the surrounding nations of the earth because He goes on to describe how He needs to clean from idolatry the surrounding nations of the earth. And He will do that at the beginning of the kingdom. That's what I believe. Okay, that was that question. The second question goes back to Psalm 49 and verse 8. Psalm 49, verse 8. And it's about the whole truth of redemption here that the psalmist is writing about. Psalm 49, verse 8. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. The question is somewhat hard to read because very light writing, but uh, it ceases forever. Uh, this was written before Jesus died on the cross. Yes. Is there a prophet, a prophetic reference to His finished work on the cross? Is this a prophetic reference to His finished work on the cross? And I would say, yes, indirectly it is. Because the redemption of a man's soul, of a human being, is so costly. He, that's what he says in this psalm. No man could afford to purchase it with his own wealth. And why is that? Because man has chosen to sin against God, making him a sinner, making man a sinner. And God is holy. So how is a holy God going to have fellowship again with sinful men and women? The only way He can do is by redeeming them. But He's already made the decree in the Garden of Eden, or before it, before the fall in the Garden of Eden, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. When you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall die. That was the decree. And it included not only a physical death, but a spiritual death. The spiritual death happened right away, didn't it? Separation from God. The, spirit, the physical death came 900 years or so later. And so the whole theme all the way through the Bible is the redemption. And redemption had to be by blood, because blood represents death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, because the shedding of blood means that God's decree of death is satisfied. The decree is met. The requirement is met. But then it has to be perfect blood. And where are we going to find that on this earth? You're going to find it in you, 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 me. We're not going to find it amongst us. You're not going to find it in the animal kingdom because the earth has been cursed since the fall of man. It's only one way. 
alone, yes, all alone, our Savior died for us. He, if the Lord Jesus hadn't been willing to come, we would never, ever be able to be saved. Who is a pardoning God like Him? But He did come. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and I know Him as my Savior, we ought not to be able to keep from speaking to others about it. It's so wonderful to know that, that our souls have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. The third question is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. And this, this is a very broad question. And we'll just make a quick reference to it now because, well, if you want to stay here till midnight, I'll answer the rest of the question for you. But most of you probably don't want to stay that long. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So who has He blessed? Us. What has He blessed us with? Most spiritual blessings? Some spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing? And then how do we get it? In Christ. It's only for those who are in Christ. So the question is, what are the spiritual blessings God has blessed us with? Well, that's what he goes on to talk about in the rest of the book of Ephesians. But I'll name a few of them. He names a few of them here. Redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. Eternal forgiveness. Being reconciled with God. Having the gift of the Holy Spirit forever. He's given to us the moment we're saved and we have Him forever. Being given a spiritual gift immediately the moment we're saved. He talks about that later on in chapter 4. He talks about some of the blessings in chapter 2 about regeneration. Of the fact that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We who formerly were afar off outside the commonwealth of Israel. No God in this world now have been brought nigh, brought near. Access in prayer to the holiest of holies. Need we go any further? That is awesome in itself. Victories in the spiritual conflict because of the armor of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. We are super overcomers through Him who loved us. There is not anything. There's not any sin. There's not any addiction. There's not any form of oppression. There is nothing that can bring us under its dominion unless we let it. Amen? According to the Word of God, because the power of God is at work within us, He wants to sanctify us and make us holy. We have to want it too because it's a cooperative work. And then, of course, in chapter 4 and 5, you know, the, the fellowship. The fellowship we've been brought into with one another and with the Lord. It's sacred. The fellowship. When we come together, we, we know that fellowship with believing Christians is different than any other kind of fellowship or gathering with other people that we could have. My family, they're not saved. Mom was saved right before she died. She's with the Lord. And so the rest of them aren't saved. I don't experience fellowship with them at family gatherings like I do with you. I'd rather be with Christians. Now, I had a responsibility to testify to them, 
But my, they've had 28 years plus of that testimony. That, you know, their blood's on their own head now. According to Ezekiel 33. And I told them that eight years ago. I said, look, I put family gatherings ahead of the Lord many times. But as of today, that's ceasing. The Lord and His people and His ministry come first. You've had opportunity to hear your blood's on your own heads. You're responsible. You've seen me. You've seen the change. You can't deny the change. You've seen the change in me. If anybody had seen the change in me, my own family had. They couldn't explain it away. They tried to for a few years. Said, well, it's another religious kick he's on or something. But eventually they had to acknowledge. I wasn't the same. I was different. My priorities were different. And the same is true for you. If you can't explain the gospel to anyone, all you have to do is be able to tell them what he did to you. You're different. You're a new creation. You're not what you were. You will never be that again. Praise God. I don't want to ever go back to Adam. I don't want to ever go back to the multi-generational sin of my fathers, which passed on from generation to generation and got worse as it did. In my life, that seat, that got broken. That line got broken. Now, looks like it's not going to pass on any physical posterity for me, but spiritually, there's been a posterity. And He promised those who left to serve Him, they left their houses and their the opportunity for bringing in children, a hundred brothers and sisters, hundreds of them, and He's done that for me. And He'll do that for any of us as we serve Him and trust Him according to how He's called us. Spiritual blessings, they're enormous. And the, the benefit of spiritual blessings is they are eternal. Would you rather have physical blessings like Old Testament Israel than just have a portion of land that was fruitful with trees and fruits and things? Or would you rather have spiritual blessings that are eternal? Spiritual blessings. Enter into them, beloved. They're yours. They're like a great treasure chest sitting at your door. Don't leave it. Don't abandon it. Enter into them. Amen. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, for this time to be in Your Word tonight. Thank You for this precious book of Micah. And while we were not able to look at every verse, we got the general gist of the message of this great prophet of old how he suffered in a time of tremendous trial and difficulty. And yet, O oh Lord, he prevailed by faith in you. Faith in the same God that we are trusting here tonight, those of us who are born-again Christians. And if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know the Lord as their Savior, we pray they will ask questions of us. They will seek to answers in the Word of God. And they will bow the knee and humbly confess Christ Jesus as their own personal Lord and Savior. We pray again for the evangelism opportunity tomorrow night that you would allow the weather to keep from interfering with the soccer opportunity. We're thankful for each soul that is there. We're thankful for all the workers in this meeting that helped to make it possible. And you know who they are and you will reward them. But Lord, we know that there are some of these young men and women that are there that have heard the gospel many times. We know they've had time to think about it. We pray, O oh Lord, You'd bring them to that place of harvest, 
of making a decision that you might be glorified amongst us. Pray for this meeting and the ongoing testimony that it is. Pray your blessing and fruitfulness and holiness. So we ask with thanksgiving tonight, O Lord, in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.